You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Monica. Hey, Bob. How's it going? I can't complain. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Sorry that you're, uh, we've gotten you up early your time. You're on the Pacific Coast. Ah. Yeah, okay. Well, get that out of the way because <laughs> now we have to actually talk. Yeah, um, all good. All so good. let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, uh, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero podcast. You're Monica Guzman, a journalist. Uh, for a time, you were a columnist at the Seattle Times. Mm -hmm. uh, you are author, and this is what we'll mainly be talking about, author of the book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. And uh, that book is closely related to your work with a group called Braver Angels, which I guess arose in the aftermath of uh, the, the election of 2016. It, it, it's aimed, it was originally called uh, better angels after mm -hmm. the famous, uh, kind of Lincoln phrase, better angels of our nature, I guess they ran into some trademark problems or mm -hmm. something, but anyway, <laughs> uh, the, uh, it, it's braver angels. They do a lot of work with, uh, what you call bridging conversations, conversations between people on kind of the blue side, so to speak, and the red side. Those of course, aren't the only kind of bridging conversations, but they're a big one. And, and that's kind of the, the context for their work. And, uh, your book. Uh, before we get into all that, let me just say, uh, you and I have something in common. Uh, we both have multiple members of our immediate family who voted for Trump. In my case, it's siblings. In your case, um, it's parents. Mm -hmm. And how's that going, first of all? You're, you're, you're still talking. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did Thanksgiving with them a couple weeks before the actual Thanksgiving so that I could, anyway, it was a whole family thing, making sure that I could see them. And we talked a bit about the midterms and I was actually surprised to hear my mother go, you know, Ron DeSantis looks impressive. I had thought for sure there was no way they would vote for anyone other than Trump in 2024. I didn't ask oh, really? uh, my dad. And my guess is that my dad is still firmly behind Trump, but I haven't asked him. yet. So they both... They both voted for him twice. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and very, you know, in, in, in our conversations where we've really gotten into it and, and I've, I've challenged them on, on their support of him and they've challenged me on, you know, everything I believe. Um, it's really come across to me very powerfully the reasons that they support him uh, to, the, to the point where I can, see, I can see the admiration and I can see the reasons for it. So given that, it, it's, it's, it's quite powerful. So. I don't know. I don't know if, if and, my dad will will change his mind or not. And what are the reasons in a if you in a word? Or is it easy yeah, to summarize? Yeah. So I mean the the one the ones that stick out as being things that are Trump but not other Republicans uh are about strength. So for my dad, Trump is akin to the character of House in that show about the diagno the diagnostician in the hospital. Do you remember the show? Yeah, Wonderful the doctor show called who, House. who uh, is he the one who was addicted to painkillers? Yeah, the, that yeah, guy. the doctor. Yeah, yeah. But, but he was so a, yeah. very broken guy, right, in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, but also very, very smart and very driven to save lives, solve puzzles, not a nice guy, breaks every rule in the book, really angers everyone at the hospital he works with, I mean, to a toxic degree. And mm -hmm. that's the way my dad sees Trump. 
that, he, that it that was in the service of good yeah. in the show. It was in the service of good that he broke that, that he did all these things. Yeah, and now, my dad thinks it's in the service of good that Trump does does what he does too. Now, one reason it surprises some people, I gather, here that your parents uh, voted for Trump is because they are immigrants from Mexico, and I, I guess they came over when you when you were a small child. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Or, I was yeah. about five or six. I think I was mm-hmm. about to turn six when we came over. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I gather is part of the answer you give people. Well, maybe it's not, but it is a fact that your parents kind of defy the stereotype of immigrants from the South, right? In the sense that they were middle class, well educated to begin with. Yep. Yes, definitely. Does, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Is that, that that's related to the fact you think that they voted for Trump or? Well, there's a lot of good nuanced conversations lately about Latinos and their political affiliation. Mm-hmm. I think that back in 2016, the left in particular had some really flat assumptions about the Latino population. And right. in the intervening years, I think it's gotten more complicated and more accurate that this is a large group of people that's extremely diverse. So whether it has to do with class or not, I, I wouldn't venture to say. I think that up and down the, the class divide, you know, there are Latinos who would be Republican for very different reasons. Uh, but for my for my dad on the subject of immigration, which is the one that came up a lot after the 2016 election, when I tell people that my parents voted for Trump and they would give me, you know, super shocked faces and ask me why. Um, mm-hmm. My dad, you know, the way he sees it. Well, actually, it's a story from his youth that that I talk about in the book that really stuck out to me, which was that his father um, always paid his taxes on time. And in Mexico, and at a certain point, in a certain way, uh, that's sort of optional, right? Like there's there's <laughs> things you can get away with. What uh, a great country. Right? So so my my dad watched his father's friends make fun of him for following Mm. rules he didn't have to, um, you know, on that principle. Like, why would you have that principle? You know, Um, you can get away with it. And so my dad saw that as being really noble and really upstanding. So he looked to the United States as a country that enforces its laws, a a country that you can't cheat. And he really liked that. So he aspired to, to, to move to the United States one way or another, and he managed to do it, you know, in his 20s. Um, uh, or maybe no, early, early thirties and was really mm-hmm. proud of that. So he cares deeply about the U S enforcing its laws, including on immigration. And when he came over with us, you know, he filled out all the paperwork, he waited in all the lines. So he does not identify with people who won't do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now let me ask you a question about, uh, well, certainly very much related to the book and to, to braver angels. I would say the book is largely, not entirely, but largely a guide for people who have decided that they want to at least make the effort to have a conversation across a divide. And and it's kind of a, a good how-to manual. At, at the end of most chapters, there are kind of tips and, and things. And, uh, but, uh, you know, there's also the problem of people who don't, <laughs> and it's a big problem, I think, who don't feel it's worth the effort to to even think about crossing the divide. Is it, uh, is it, is it possible to say like, what, what is the most common problem at that level with, 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 with people who aren't even uh, ready to commit 
to the project that, say, Braver Angels is about, if that makes sense. The the biggest problem at that level with folks who would who would see that big barrier in front of them is that what you mean? Yeah, who would like slam the door in your face, so to speak, metaphorically. Uh, if you walked up to them and said, "Hey, want to take a trip and go talk to some Trump supporters, or want to go talk to some mm. Biden supporters?" They'd be they'd be like, "It's hopeless," or or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Th- th- those people are hopeless, or or whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. what? There's what several. Kind of- There's several okay. things. Uh, uh, one is, you know, folks who believe that, uh, talking across the divide, particularly the divide that you're, you're mentioning, um, you know, from blue to the red, to the deep red, to the Trump supporting red, uh, one divide is folks who, whose identities, it feels like their identities keep them from doing that in a, in a way that would not be harmful, you know? So they believe I'm black, I'm gay, I'm this or that thing that Trump supporters must hate. So that's mm-hmm. one. Uh, another is hopelessness. You know, they're too far gone. They're too extreme. And um, I've heard, I want to spend my energy where I can make an impact. So I can't make an impact there. Forget it. Uh, Another, I think, is people who are on their own extreme, just on the other end, who believe that the only way to engage the other side is war. Uh, You Hmm. know, so since we're not in a kind of war where we kill each other, we'll do the next best thing, which is uh, shame and distance uh, each other and try to just beat each other at elections, but definitely not actually talk to them because they're just pure evil. Um, so there's that. I think there's for, for a lot of people, whether it's blatant or not, you know, the idea is that they're either crazy, stupid or evil. And for those reasons, just not worth engaging. Uh, and this happens absolutely on both sides, by the way. But because I'm blue, um, I'm more familiar with that sort of attitude um, toward toward reds, I suppose. Mm-hmm. The um, and is. I mean, does does Braver Angels just decide to basically deal with people who have decided to try to talk, or is there also a kind of a, 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 an effort to uh, to just elicit some kind of initial interest in the project? Oh, definitely, definitely. I, I personally don't think that the larger mission really works uh, without without pulling everyone in at least a little. So mm-hmm. I think there's a persuasive case to be made across the political divide, no matter how partisan you are or how convicted to your opinions. One huge misconception about, you know, Braver Angels, but the larger bridging movement is that it's really a movement to come to the middle. Mm-hmm. That this is really about compromise at the expense of your convictions and your beliefs that if you're deep red or deep blue, what we want is to make you a lighter shade of red, a lighter shade of blue. And mm-hmm. that's a horrible misconception because if if that were what we wanted, it would be doomed from the start. If right. if that were what we thought worked, it obviously wouldn't. That's not that's not where this democracy is headed. It, instead, um, and my friend Manu Mil, who's the CEO of an organization called Bridge USA, speaks to this really really well. This is this is about temperament. This is about arguing for your opinions in a way that they will actually be heard. This is about making persuasion effective again. And I would say at the moment, a lot of the deepest partisans are not being persuasive at all. They think they are, but when they attack the other side the way that they do, they just make everything worse and they don't realize it. But there are ways to engage with people on the other side where you're understanding them, they're understanding you, you connect on a certain plane, and then the insights that you have to offer each other actually make a dent. 
but you have to get there. And what's stopping a lot of people from getting there is animosity, is this idea that those people suck. And so mm -hmm. you believe that you're never even going to approach them and you're not going to, you're not going to see what's sort of pretty clear, which is that only by approaching can we persuade. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, I mean, one of the more, uh, effective things I've found in talking to people on my side, which is pretty much the blue side, is to say that, you know, the anger is playing into Trump's hands, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to offer it initially as tactical advice, which which I think it is. Um, and I think that you could probably make the same case to people on the red side, although I uh, I, I do it less uh, because they're, they're kind of not in my tribe. But I, I, get, I think it's also true. Certainly the, the Democrats going into the midterms acted as if they thought they could um, exploit uh, the, the perception that the other side was oh, yeah. ang so angry that they're determined to subvert democracy and, and, and so on. So, yeah. I mean, is that a big part of your opening pitch is that that, look, you you're not even you may not even be serving your own cause mm. if you don't work harder to understand the others. Yes, yes. Um, the opening pitch, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a little more like the second or third thing because it's a tough thing for people to want to see sometimes. Um, if what is what is the opening pitch? If there is a single opening pitch, hmm. Well, hmm. That's so interesting. I, I, I mean, there's several, but but I think a big thing is where everyone agrees. Everyone across the political spectrum agrees that we are broken in the way that we talk to each other. Our politics is mm -hmm. broken. Our media is broken. The narratives that we're hearing are missing a lot. Everyone agrees on this, right? From the deepest conservatives to the deepest liberals and progressives. It, it, that's just, that's where you begin. It's just like, there's gotta be a better way, y'all. Like, this isn't working. So from there, <laughs> from there, um, I think it's it's then touching on what I think most people sense is that our fear of each other or our certainty that the other side is irredeemable is keeping us from seeing something more real and complicated that we would see if we were to approach. Um, and then there's, you know, the stories and models of when that happens and good things result. Um, so it's 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 up and down. But I do think that one of the strongest arguments to make really is about if you are the deepest, most partisan activist, you want to be engaging across the divide in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. You do. Because if, if, if what you want to do is change the world, then what you want to do is, is either, you know, either or both persuade the other side to see things a little more your way uh, because you think it's the better way and you might be right. Uh, but also, you know, advocate for your side and fight the other side in an effective way. And as long as we are hyper polarized like this, all that's going to happen is that the parties are going to trade power and undo each other's stuff. That doesn't add yeah. up to much. That doesn't actually change culture. You know, it doesn't change us. So it's just not it's just not sustainable no matter who you are. Like you could, you know, you could have the biggest success in your movement in this one silo, but then you can't get beyond that silo. So, you mm -hmm. know, you're, you're just building your own reality while everyone marches off in a different direction. And that's not, it just doesn't play out well. Uh -huh. let, me, let me ask you this question. There's a part in the book when I think it's, uh, you're, you're, you're heading toward one of these bridge building exercises. There's a big one you spend a lot of time on called melting mountains, uh, where you, you, you kind of, uh, I guess get on a bus or something and, and head, head West and have an encounter with, uh, 
people who are largely from a rural area, I guess, and, 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 and kind of trend red. Um, and I think it's in reflecting on that. Uh, I may be wrong, but there's some point where you say, I, I realized going in, what I was thinking about was how can I make them understand my point of view? And I wasn't thinking so much about how can I better understand theirs? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it seems to me this is a, uh, a, a, you know, a kind of a natural, close to universal human uh, bias that, you know, we want to make our point of view understood. That's part of wanting to persuade people mm -hmm. uh, that we're right, which we all naturally mm -hmm. uh, want to do. And I guess it's it's inherently a big problem. Uh, but that said, uh, in other words, having having agreed that, that kind of everybody does this to some extent, one thing I wondered while reading the book is, in your experience in both kind of red America and blue America, so to speak, to oversimplify, does one side feel more misunderstood than the other? Does, does, uh, cause I, I have a guess that I would make about this, but, but I may be, uh, I may be wrong. Is there an asymmetry in terms of the extent to which uh, the tribes kind of feel that the problem is, is that they're not understood by the other? Yes and no. And here's why. <laughs> Writ large, no. I think that both sides have, you know, reasons to think that they're the ones being misunderstood the most. But where it really matters is on the mi micro level. So if there's someone who's liberal in a very conservative family or very conservative town surrounded by conservatives, they're going to be the ones who in their own lives are going to feel like the most misunderstood. And so if one of their conservative relatives finally, in their view, starts getting curious and asking them questions, that that isolated liberal is not suddenly immediately going to reciprocate. They're going to think, oh my gosh, I finally have a chance to be heard. And they're going to talk their relative's ear off. And there's a lot of situations where it happens on the other side. And, um, and it's from that other side that I, it's because I'm blue, I hear from a lot of people who are blue going, conservatives aren't curious. I've talked to them, I've asked them questions, and they don't ask me any questions back. And and what, what, I, what I caution is not to assume that that's the case. Uh, I think that there's a lot of blues who assume that reds are less curious. Um, but I think, that, I think that it is this asymmetry born more on the micro level and on the individual relationship level. And it comes from the, the fact that, sure, we want to understand, but mostly we want to be understood. I don't think that there is a person who wants to understand more than be understood at their heart. So mm -hmm. understanding takes a little more effort than wanting to be understood. So when you, when you come together with somebody else, you, you, you're not just talking to each other, you're talking to the, the labels that you give each other. You know, In some cases, if, if this is the only conservative you've talked to in months, then you're piling on to that one human being, everything you see on Fox News. That's not fair. <laughs> But because you're doing that, you're going to want to demand that they understand you before you understand them. And this is, this is part of what's at the impasse, I think, when we come together, is we expect reciprocity. Um, but I think we can be sort of empathetically acknowledging that there's asymmetry, but that we can't predict what the asymmetry is. You know, the conservative you talk to, the liberal you talk to, you don't know how unheard they feel. You don't know what bucket they're putting you in. But what you want is to get into the kind of relationship where you're just seeing each other as individual people instead of representatives of a larger block. 
Because that's mm-hmm. mostly what we do in these discursive spaces like social media, where we're not really people. You know, I, I always say the internet is a non-place that makes us into non-people. So when we talk to a person on social media, we're not really talking to a person. We're talking to a whole ideology. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that's a high bar, right? So, so yeah, the asymmetry writ large, I think, doesn't exist and doesn't matter. It's the asymmetry at the micro level that matters because it's, it's people want to be understood in the moment. If, if I was understood yesterday by a conservative, it doesn't matter. I'm talking to a different mm-hmm. conservative today, and I want to be understood by them today. So those demands can be, can be barriers. Yeah, and I guess a symptom of the problem we have is how automatically we, when we encounter someone we've never encountered before, we try to put them in one tribe or another. I mean, if I imagine getting on an airplane, you know, 40 years ago, of course, this was also back when people didn't have earbuds, so they would be more inclined to talk to each other to begin with on an airplane. That used to happen. But anyway, I, you know, I, I, of course, you're trying to figure the person out. You're trying to locate them in a certain sense. But it wouldn't have been the case that the first location I want to do is figure out whether they voted for Trump. And that right. really is kind of it now. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's how intense and toxic things have, have gotten. And I guess part of your mission is kind of one mind at a time, try to create an environment where, where that is, is less automatic, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that that's the simple place where this other approach begins, which is just see each other as people. Just start with that because it is more honest. It is accurate. Mm-hmm. And it gets you off of the team sport tribal dynamics that poison our conversations. And this does happen to all of us. It's not in a, in a big way. It's not really our fault. Like th- this is the dynamics of the world we're in. It's our choice whether we want to fight back against those dynamics. And what kinds of things, uh, do the job of persuading the other person that you're a person. Of course, you're not literally, they know you're a person. So, so it's, it's not quite the, the epiphany that you're a homo sapien, but mm-hmm. um, what uh, are there kinds of, you know, is it like, oh, you too have, you too have a daughter that you worry about or, mm-hmm. you know, what are the most uh, common, if this makes sense, uh, mm-hmm. points of contact that, that helped do this work? Yeah. I mean, I think, I I think of three off the bat. One is communicate with each other in person or at least with voice, you know, or on video communicating with each other, especially strangers, just via text on social media is just not a way you're going to see each other's humanity very easily. It's just not. Um, the other is what you mentioned points of commonality. I do this curiosity workshop based on tactics in the book and you know, inevitably people will bring up, well, you know, in your book and in the, in part one, you talk about how we're divided and how it's sort of human nature to be siloed and and othering and sorting, you know, to be around those who, with whom we're comfortable. And so I say, it's true that we are built to divide, but we're also built to connect. And in the workshop, I, we demonstrate that together in a way, because I have them ask each other questions just in a pair of, of strangers. And I have them not, uh, comment on the other's answers. And somebody will always raise their hand after that exercise and say, it was really hard for me not to say, oh, my daughter went to that school too. Or, oh, I've been to that country. Or, yeah, that's also my favorite dish. So we we want to make connections. We are built to do that because it is an evolutionary social survival technique that has been built over millennia for human beings. We want to connect. So, so yeah, finding points of commonality is amazing. 
But I'd say the single most powerful thing is to not talk about opinions, but rather to share stories that illustrate Mm. and illuminate our opinions. So when Mm. you share a personal experience or a story about how a concern or a dilemma, you know, has landed in your life, um, there's actually research that shows that that's a far more, people are, are far more able to understand where you're coming from, right? If you tell it as a story instead of a bunch of logical reasons as if we're all robots evaluating things that way. We're not all robots evaluating things that way. <laughs> we are biographies. We are walking, you know, we we trail our entire histories behind us and that's how we view the world. So, yeah, so um yeah, so whenever whenever I approach somebody and I know that wow, we have really different lives, it's going to be interesting. Let's see how we can connect, you know. I I don't I don't think of revealing my opinion as sort of like, well, it is this, you know. Instead of go, well, you know, let me tell you about something that happened that makes mm-hmm. it easier to understand why I fall on this side. Of something. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like so, when you asked me about my dad and I told you the story about him watching his dad be made fun of mm-hmm. by his friends. It's like it's the same idea. It's like we understand each other better when we hear a story. Right. So you're steering them when you tell stories, you're steering them away from uh, just recognizing that you have a different opinion about an issue and there are certain arguments for that side of like some policy question toward recognizing that you have your reasons, right? right? There are reasons in your life that you have this position. I mean, those are two very different things. And it's it's understanding that people have their reasons that that tends to uh Tends to warm people up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's a quote um, in the book by Blaise Pascal, uh, old French philosopher, but he says that the heart has reasons that reason does not know. Uh-huh. So when we when we speak in the language of you know logic, sometimes there's things we can't capture. There's there's things we feel or sense that are still kind of burning and hot inside us, and it and they might. Those feelings, if we those those senses, if we can't communicate them, we will feel unheard, which keeps mm-hmm. us from hearing, right? And so they'll become barriers unless we find some way to share them. And the best way I know of is to just tell that story as you're as you're thinking about that sense, that feeling, that concern, that hot thing in your heart. See what images come to mind, and try to talk about those. You know, mm-hmm. whatever memory, whatever thing comes up, try to share that, and you'll be surprised. The other person might might at least kind of understand a little bit like where you're coming from. So th- that piece I think is really important. The heart has reasons that reason does not know. So if all we do is talk in in the language of reasons, we'll never get to those those reasons that reason has not articulated yet and doesn't know how to. Um, and that's, I think, how we grow as a culture. A lot of times as things seem to shift, which they have been in the last 10 years in this country, and frankly around the world, all kinds of norms being uplifted and changed and overthrown and all this stuff that I have sensed, I don't know if you have a sort of lack of ability to articulate what's happening. And I think of it as a sort of adolescence, you know, something is changing in our society, but it changed, like we sense it before we can speak it. And so in that, in that adolescence, it's like a teenager yelling at their mom all the time, you don't get it, you don't get it. And we don't, we don't have the language to communicate. Right. So the language will come, um, and I think that the first the first language is story. Okay. Now, there's another reasons quote that I think is in your book, and it's associated with a movie. It may be that some director said it. It may be oh, in yes. a movie. And it's something like, 
it's something about how, in a way, horrifying it is mm-hmm. when you realize that everyone has their reasons, because yes. that includes people who disagree with you. It, it includes people who do terrible things, mm-hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. But everyone has their reasons. What is, I, I yeah, you, it's, you it's, may not it's remember from, it word for word, yeah. but you no, have, no, it's, have a it's better from the idea movie, than I do. Um, it's from the movie, uh, oh my God, why can't I think of it? Um, the, 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 the rules of the game, uh, Les, Les Regles du Jeu, which is a classic French movie by Jean Renoir. It's wonderful. Uh, yeah, and it's a line that says, the truly terrible thing is this. Everyone has their reasons. Uh, la chose effroyable, c'est que tout le monde a ses raisons. Um, yeah, and it's, 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 I think it's remarkable because once you realize everyone has their reasons, you can no longer believe that people who do things you think are bad are crazy. Right. They have their reasons too. And have you noticed that you run into this problem if you try to explain to your tribe why the other tribe does things? I mean, it's even worse if you go further and ex- try to explain why some mass murder did it. But let's just let's just let's just say mm-hmm. you're talking to Blue Tribe about Trump supporters, and you start explaining the reasons, and and people say, "Oh, so you're justifying it? Oh, so mm-hmm. you're." defending it you're it seems to me that this is one of the biggest problems in all of this is the 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 intuition that to uh i mean there's this is another french saying that that uh, to know all is to forgive all to mm-hmm. to understand everything mm-hmm. about why somebody did something is to give them a you know a kind of a free pass mm-hmm. and people don't want to you know kind of forgive you so to speak for opinions they find abhorrent much less for horrible crimes and and so on. I mean, is that yeah. a big? I love that you're bringing this up because I've been obsessed in the last few months with what I what I think of as barriers. You know, uh, you you kind of opened this conversation with with asking about that. What's in people's way? And you're you're helping me in my head articulate a barrier that maybe I haven't articulated uh, so much, which is that we all want accountability. We want accountability for the actions um, that we take that lead our world to a worse place. In our view. And we want people to take responsibility for those actions. And we want to make sure that that responsibility is consistently socially enforced, right? So that means if someone starts to tell us an empathetic story of someone whose beliefs we believe led to something bad, we don't want to hear it. And we believe that that person telling that story is weakening our case for accountability and our ability as a society to hold each other accountable for these things. I think this is super compelling and really, really interesting. Um, as a journalist uh, who has so many times interviewed people who have done unsavory things, right? Like I, I interviewed, you mentioned a, a murderer, right? I interviewed, um, I went to Texas and I talked to someone um, who had who was convicted of murdering two cab drivers for petty cash. And then I watched him die two weeks later. Um, mm. So did I talk to him thinking, it is excusing his behavior to understand his childhood, to understand his family, to understand the path he has walked. No. And if if it were true, right, that witnessing each other's stories somehow excuses our behavior, uh, imagine everything we wouldn't know, right? Like all the ways that we wouldn't learn about ourselves as people by hearing about other people's stories. I mean, we do this in our fiction all the time. Imagine if we couldn't do it in our nonfiction. Our fiction wouldn't exist because we wouldn't even know the stories. I, I just find it a little bit ludicrous, this idea. Now, the, the, the point about accountability and responsibility is a really interesting one. We, we do want to hold everybody accountable. 
The thing is, we need to have all the variables. And I think a lot of times we sort of smugly walk around like, well, I read, I've read five thought pieces, really good ones by great columnists with a lot of statistics. And those tell me everything I need to know about why these people voted this way. And I've got them. I, I, I understand them. I know everything I need to know. The other day I saw, um, I saw a meme or a photo of a poster at a protest that said something like, oh gosh, what was it? Um, it's, it's not that everyone who voted for Trump is, is racist. It's that for everyone who voted for Trump, racism is not a deal breaker. Now, what a challenging statement, right? What a challenging statement. And what I would say to that poster is, for you, it might seem like, you know, that piece, that racism that you see is everything. It takes up, it colors the entire formula or calculation in these other people's minds. But if you go and talk to them, they have concerns. Like, you're, you have a very high concern about racism, and you should. That's, that's a worry. <laughs> it's a big one, you know? But go and talk to them, and you will find other concerns that you may not share that are extremely important to them. And those may also be really good concerns. So unless you go and approach them, you won't see those. And so you'll believe like two plus two equals four. These people are evil. But if you're not even collecting all the variables, if you're sitting there thinking that you know everything you need to know and you haven't even engaged, that, that to me is the biggest tragedy. Judging each other more while engaging each other less. Makes no mm -hmm. sense. People are mysteries. We cannot be explained in a statistic or a thought piece. And I'm, 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 I'm done with a world that thinks that that's enough. <laughs> You know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I haven't actually given you a chance to talk about the book per se much. So why don't you just talk a little about the kinds of guidance you're giving, the kinds of tips you're you're, you're giving, the kinds of uh, maybe specific barriers these these things are designed to to break down. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I mentioned that in the first part of the book, I talk about how we got here. So just one fifth of the book is. Why are we so polarized, basically? And, and it's this framework about SOS that we're sorting, we're othering, and we're siloing. Um, then I talk about curiosity uh, as a brain, as a cognitive ability. It's fantastic. It's really, really cool. We're all capable of it. It's a practice. And, and like a muscle, it gets stronger the more that you do it. Coming into conversations across disagreement, one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves is, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? Um, Another thing that that leads to is we'll always have assumptions and judgments of each other before we've really heard each other out. So instead of those judgments just sort of subconsciously, you know, leading us uh, in a certain direction, what we can do is turn those judgments into questions. So as we approach somebody and go, oh, they just think this because of this, we can go, do they think that because of this? How can I ask? Right. And so that's really the whole book is about getting curious. It's about the power of curiosity. I heard the other day um, someone I really admire, you know, talk about curiosity as something very selfish. And I bristled at that a bit. And, and what he meant was when you're curious, uh, it's a selfish thing because you're, you're, you're just enriching yourself. But to mm -hmm. me, and, and, and again, I've been a journalist a long time. I've interviewed a lot of people and I've seen them light up because somebody cares. Somebody wants to hear their story. Curiosity is caring. Um, curiosity, the gift of your interest is a really profound gift. Um, you can give it to your friends, you can give it to your family, you can give it to a lot of people. So curiosity is not selfish, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that you can be curious about people, there's two really powerful questions I talk about in the book. 
that tend to not be judgmental. And instead, what they do is they gather information. They gather those variables you're not seeing. They tell you what you're missing so that then you can get curious. You can see what what else do I need to know? Where's the gap between what I know and what I want to know and keep asking questions? And those two types of questions are questions of experience. How did you come to believe what you believe? That type of question, not why, which gets to reasons. We talked about this, but but stories, but experiences. Tell me the how. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other really powerful type of non-judgmental question is, what are your concerns? What are you afraid of when it comes to abortion or the conversation around climate or you know gun regulations or guns in schools? What what most concerns you? What do you hope for? Um, and when you ask about concerns, you end up having conversations about values. Uh, so we go into that quite a bit in the book. And then finally, there's a deep dive on making sure that in your conversations, people can actually be honest. Because curiosity is not very useful if people are holding back so much that they're just telling you like copies of what everybody else says and they're not being real. So you want to make sure that people feel comfortable and secure, um, you know, secure in, oh, this is a person who could actually hear me. And mm-hmm. being being received is extraordinarily effective. Um, I'm, I'm right now really getting into research on intellectual humility. And it turns out that there are studies that show that even if you all you do, even if all you do is bring to mind, just think of someone in your life who tends to receive your ideas well, not agree with you, but receive your ideas well, you'll become mm-hmm. more intellectually humble. You'll be able to hear different perspectives. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I had never really focused on the curiosity thing, you know, as a barrier here. I mean, I've thought a lot about what what the problems are along the tribal divide, so to speak. And I had never kind of thought of it as like, curiosity is this mm-hmm. generally very uh, enticing thing. It's like, you're, you're really driven to be curious in certain realms, but with certain kinds of people, you're not. And the reason is, you know, once you've decided they're in the enemy tribe, you actually want them to fit a certain description. You want to be able to say they have X, Y, and Z motivation. And and so you act actively resist challenge to, uh, the narrative that your tribe wants to sustain. Now, you mentioned uh, that for you, your experience in journalism played a, a role in, I, I guess, kind of the maybe the cultivation of your curiosity or at least mm-hmm. the way you pursue it. And I know what you mean. I spent uh, at, a, at a young age a couple of years at a small newspaper just, you know, every day writing like multiple stories, calling people, so on. I very much identify, by the way, with your uh, the terror you initially felt as a reporter oh. at even calling someone and asking them questions. I mean, I remember sitting at the desk, like just not being able to summon up the courage to make the call. Yeah. But a- anyway, so <laughs> it's very, it's very good therapy in a lot of ways, I think, to be a journalist. But yes. one, one of them really is, uh, well, uh, tell me if you had this, uh, if being a journalist helped you realize the extent to which your initial take on almost anything is is going to be wrong. At that's best, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, that's at best egregiously oversimplified. Absolutely, one hundred percent. There were there were so many times where I thought, I know exactly what the story is going to be. I just need to go and get a quote. You know. Yeah. And somebody just sort of surprised me and delighted me with, "Whoa, wait, what? Like, where is this coming from?" And there's a piece of their story I didn't anticipate, and the entire story is just completely different from what I expected. Yeah. And I talked the other day with um with somebody who for for a podcast who is is also a journalist and he shared a story about how he became a journalist and and I I realized we connected on on something that I hadn't articulated which is that for him and for myself 
once you, you know, have interviewed somebody or learned something about their story and discovered something really meaningful and surprising and and it feels very valuable and true, you feel this extraordinary obligation to share it and to share it responsibly and well. And that was one of the most fun things. That is one of the most fun things about being a journalist is that delight in discovering some some piece of somebody's story that's so resonant um, mm-hmm. that you just cannot wait to share it. In his case, it was a story he reported in a small town where he was a, a reporter as a young man. And um, there was a, a person who, a, an old man who would not sell his house so that the town could build a new highway. And so the, the you know, his editor said, go, go talk to this guy. And, um, you know, for the first long time in their conversation, there was no reason that was coming out. Uh, but then the man shared this story about um, being in like World War II or in, in I think so. And then uh, being on a like a boat that was crossing the Panama Canal and how he got out in the middle of the night when everyone else was in their really tight bunks um, to watch that moment happen. And anyway, there was there was there was a moment in that story that clicked for the reporter, like, this is why you won't leave home. This is why you won't leave home. Um, anyway, and and once he had seen that story, he. He knew why. He knew why this guy was not going to sell his house. And he couldn't wait to tell the community because he mm-hmm. knew, like, they will understand this better. You know, they won't just judge this guy for standing in the way of progress or whatnot. They will see themselves in him. Um, yeah. Anyway, and every time that happens out there when we're discovering each other, when we're being journalists, like we're <sighs> journalism is so cool. Right. I mean, the the storytelling institution of our world. It's, it's so important. It's really fraught right now and there's issues, big ones, but, but when, when it's done right, <laughs> when it's done right, it's, it's in the service of everybody's understanding of each other. Mm. But I remember as a journalist, sometimes resisting the acknowledgement of complexity, j- much the way you might in kind of, in thinking about the blue or red tribe, just in the sense that like, you call the first person, they got their perspective. It works as a story. And you could write the story and then and then you realize you, you get some glimmer that there's actually this other perspective out there, somebody who disagrees with them. And you're like, oh, shit, now I got to call somebody else. I hate calling people. Mm-hmm. And, and it, so it's it's uh, there is that parallel with with, you know, there there is often incentive to simplify. But I agree uh, about how valuable you know, much for this reason, the experience can be. I mean, honestly, if everyone, if we could somehow make everyone in the world spend a year at a, as, a, as a reporter yeah. at, a, at a community oh. newspaper or something. What a great, great idea. <laughs> That's a yeah. really good idea. Instead oh of putting gosh. them in the army or something, have them do yes. this. <laughs> I love that. You you also, as you were talking, I, I flashed back to working at the Houston Chronicle as a cops reporter when I was just starting out. Um, which was terrifying to me because I was so new to it and there was so much I didn't know and, and I wasn't confident about. But but I remember having to write the police blotter, right? So really, 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 really short, uh, tiny, like paragraph or two. Like this happened, you know, there was a homicide, blah, blah, blah. blah. And, and, so, and I would need to call sometimes the next of kin, you know, for some kind of, I don't know, it was, it was heart-wrenching. And I would hear stories, real stories about real people but I couldn't put it in the blotter, mm. you know? Like the editors would be like, no, Monica, you're doing it wrong. You can't, mm. we just need, we just, just tell us what block of, of Hartford Avenue it was on. Right. And, you know, what the medical examiner said. And I'm like, but these are real people who died, mm. you know? And oftentimes in communities that get completely overlooked. Uh, yeah. So there's been a reckoning in journalism about that. But, but yeah, it's like we, there is this hunger, right? There's this hunger to tell people stories. 
Now, you mentioned that journalism has its problems. Uh, there's there's an argument that uh, the whole, you know, the whole era of, of in polarization, intense red blue conflict has made it worse, including, you know, some of our great newspapers. Definitely. I don't name names. But uh, is, is that is that your sense that yes. um, in, in what ways has it gotten worse? hundred percent. Uh, well, you know, those institutions of media and politics are completely connected. They are mirrors of us. And so I don't see the origin of the problem being within media. Uh, I see it being within us. I think other people would disagree, but that's how I see it. I think, um, journalism is full of people who are extremely well-intentioned and want to tell responsible stories to their community that informs things well. But journalists are also full of human beings who are just as vulnerable. In fact, I would argue more vulnerable to the skewing effects of polarization and the animosity behind polarization as anyone else. Why? Because journalists spend a lot of time on social media. That's one big reason. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of journalists are on Twitter because they have to be. And there's been this, this community that's risen on Twitter where you're almost like talking to each other, right? And it gets a little harder to talk to the communities you represent. And like there's there's work to try to correct for that. But because journalists always have to be in the news, they always have to, you know, be in these spaces where people are yelling at each other. Honestly, I think journalists have an elevated sense of anxiety. And and the ideas that we're, you know, plugged in and that we're keeping tabs on everything, but I think that part of what's skewing everything so much is our fear and our anxiety. It's the emotion that we give it's how those emotions in you know impact and form narratives about where we are as a society mm -hmm. and so all those journalists are writing stories with with more heat that may not be justified and narratives that are more certain about good and evil that may not be nuanced enough and so i think that's mm -hmm. happening a lot and again it's not quote unquote their fault just like it's not in a lot of ways our fault that we are in these toxic places but again it's their choice and it's our choice to take steps to get out of that, to correct the projections in our minds, to make sure that we're not just embracing a narrative of good and evil, because I think that's one of the problems in journalism, embracing a narrative of good and evil that that colors all of our stories and makes it extremely hard for people to really understand their neighbors. And, and if we can't do that, we're going to fall apart. Yeah. And unfortunately, that narrative sells. And I mean, they have the data, they know what headlines people click on and people click on the, you know, the more tribalized. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So, so is it your view, although you are, you know, in your, your blue on balance, uh, is it your view that this has led to what is alleged in red America that at, at, at elite media institutions, at least there is a, a clear liberal bias or, or kind of a clear anti-Trump and anti-Trumpism oh, bias? Totally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'd be so hard to argue that that weren't the case. But but I would say, I mean, it precedes Trump by a lot. And it's not malevolent. It's not malevolent um, mm -hmm. at all. Uh, I think that for a long time, conservative media has been a reactionary thing. Uh, it's, it's, its whole identity is to be reactionary, you know, which mm -hmm. is why on a lot of uh, right-leaning media, you see that. Like their stories will be, a college said this, a college professor said that, the New York Times wrote this, you know, and mm -hmm. we're going to, we're going to take issue with that. So it's, for a long time been a reactionary thing. And and in a way, when you look at the dynamics of liberal conservative at, at their real core, you know, the, the progressive liberal side is about what can we change? And the conservative side is about what ought to be preserved. And both those mm -hmm. questions are extremely important for responsible change. So 
oftentimes our culture, you know, leans into the liberal piece really strongly. Um, and I, yeah, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of, a lot of folks in influential places in our culture are liberal. And so we, we lean into things like that really quickly and conservatives go, hang on, what, what is this? Whatever happened to this and this and this? And so we end up yelling at each other. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think that that precedes Trump and it's a very interesting dynamic and it might even be a dynamic that's healthy. I, I don't know. And so for our media to play out those dynamics is not the problem. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think the problem is far more when we deny nuance that actually exists, when we decide that somebody, a group of people is just evil and bad and not, not to be listened to. That's when I think we betray the core principle of journalism, which I believe is to be curious. Absolutely mm-hmm. be curious. We, we have to contend with each other all the time. So let's not embrace too easily, you know, an ideology that oversimplifies. Okay. Now, um, you said earlier that part of the advice you give people is like, spend less time, you know, uh, communicating via social media and text and so on, have real conversations in, 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 in person where you, you see the person and, and so on. Much of the book is pitched to people who are, who, who want to have real conversations of this kind, complete with mm-hmm. visual cues. Um, at the same time, you know, more and more for better and worse, communication isn't in that form. And also I would think, you know, that, 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 that is kind of the braver angels model. I gather you get people together, they talk, they understand. One question is like, well, it's two related questions. Aren't you kind of swimming against the tide mm. and, you know, uh, and, and how scalable is that? I mean, there's one study yeah. report that says that, well, if, you know, they study the effects of a, of a braver angels encounter and say, well, if you scale this, if, if everyone had this experience in America, it would make up for 50% of the polarization that's happened since, you know, yeah. 19, whatever or something. But, uh, it, that's, that's a challenge, right? How, how scalable is it? And, uh, especially in a world where technology seems to be drawing us into other forms of discourse. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not that scalable. And that is a challenge for sure. It's extremely impactful. Um, social media, it's not that it's not that it's impossible to have these kinds of conversations on social media, but it is a lot harder. And the reason is everything that gets communicated silently um, in terms of goodwill and trust and connection, uh, when there's video and voice or when you're in person, has to somehow get translated into words. And we don't know how to do that very well. That's not a, that's we haven't had to develop that skill. Conversation is a really sophisticated thing that we all do. It's extraordinarily sophisticated. And we don't really think about that, the skills that we've had to develop. So going into social media is we're children again. And we, mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to start from scratch. How do you communicate on social media the goodwill that you might feel? And you, you probably have noticed, most people have. You go onto social media, you read something that you don't quite like, and you read it to yourself in a voice that's more aggressive probably than the person mm-hmm. intended. I have misunderstood mm-hmm. people via text so many times because I, I, I hear not with the voice that they used because I have no access to it, but rather with the voice I'm using. I don't like what mm-hmm. they have to say, so I'm going to apply some bad assumptions that aren't even there. And so right. we do that constantly to each other. Now, as far as, as far as the scalability, you know, Braver Angels acknowledges this. We have a workshop called um, Skills for Bridging the Divide on Social Media. It's mm-hmm. an e-course. It takes about 20 minutes. So it's there and it's there by popular demand and it's really good. Um, but do we think that people are all, you know, millions of people are going to take it and then everything's going to be fine? No, 
mm-hmm. you know, social media has obviously extraordinary benefits, uh, asynchronous communication, scalable communication beyond geographic bounds, you know, being able to talk to a community of strangers who might like, you know, rush to your aid um, or to your support on some idea is really cool. There's a lot mm-hmm. of really cool things about it. So, so nothing against social media on that front. Um, I think the answer is more change the ratio. You know, spend time on social media, but if you're spending too much time on social media, can can you change the ratio? Can you have more of your conversations in person, uh, even mm-hmm. if they're just conversations with yourself? You know, <laughs> even if you're just kind of reflecting a little bit in solitude, uh, that's probably and, better. <laughs> okay, now I know you got to go in a minute, but one yeah. more question at least: the, the is the experience of braver angels that when they, you know, use their techniques of uh, the, the specific cues and so on that seem to work to foster real communication in real life, that when they use them uh, online with like Zoom conversations and stuff, I assume they've experimented with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, th- that they are, that they're that they're effective there. Uh, that, in other words, that online can be a very effective medium for face-to-face progress. Absolutely. In fact, during the pandemic, uh, one of our signature programs, Braver Angels Debates, grew by leaps and bounds. And, and I think it's going to stay virtual. The Zoom Braver Angels Debates that bring together hundreds and hundreds of people from all across the country to talk about very divisive issues in a way that they can really understand each other's perspectives. Th- those are extraordinary. Like I, they've, they've driven me to tears. They've been nuts, like so fun and so good. And yeah, it's hard to get such diverse group of people from all different parts of the country into one room. Um, it's a lot trickier to do that. So yeah, a lot of our programs are virtual. I think that Zoom is an extraordinary technology. The fact that we have, you see my face and my gestures and you hear my voice and my tone and you see my smiles and my giggles, uh, that goes a long way. It goes a really, really long way to how we can express ourselves um, and see even even the fact that we can see each other's you know living rooms or offices or <laughs> that that I think is is awfully humanizing. I think it's really, really cool. So yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of gifts that that technology has given us, and, and Braver Angels has has taken advantage for sure. Okay. Anything else you want to say about the book before we sign off? Aside from buy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, check out uh, my website, moniguzman.com. Um, it has a lot more information and other kinds of links and things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, what I'm out to do is help to build a world that sees itself. To me, a more mm-hmm. curious world is a world that sees itself, that's able to open its eyes. Um, and even when it's really scary, you know, when we're in, <laughs> when we're watching a scary movie, we cover our eyes. <laughs> but, you know, can we open them? And can, can this be a world that mm-hmm. sees itself? And I really hope so. Okay. And with all due acknowledgement of the limitations of Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? Ah, yes. It's at Moni Guzman. So M-O-N-I-G-U-Z-M-A-N. I'm, I'm all over the internet <laughs> with that handle. Okay. Not hard to find. Okay. And I am at Robert Ryder. W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R on Twitter. And thank you so much. Uh, The book is called, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. You're doing God's work. (laughs) So uh, keep it up. All right. Thanks, Bob. This was great. Thank you.